Hey, aloha, everybody. This is Jeff Reinbold, and we are back. We are back big, and we are back with one of the greatest characters in the history of the National Football League. When we thought about how we're going to upgrade the show and you know make, give you more football, there's nobody better than this guy right here to have as our first guest on the Jeff Reinbold Show. I gotta, I gotta say, fans, buckle your seatbelt, snap your chin strap, double buckle up because we are going for a ride today. Jerry Glanville joins us. Jerry, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. It's more fun to be working with you than doing these iPods. <laughs> Folks, we're going to hit, we're going to unpack your career, which has been a long and very storied one. Um, now you went from uh, high school to college. You played your college football for Raleigh Dodge at Northern Michigan university. Talk about what coach Dodge brought to the table. He was a longtime stealer assistant coach was he not he was a in with the Steelers he was an excellent uh uh offensive line coach he then became the head coach by the way right here in Alabama I'm in Mobile Alabama he was the head coach when the Canadian League expanded to the U.S. he was the head coach in Birmingham uh very very uh, astute football coach good man and uh, he's no longer with us we all miss him now you're up in you're up in the Upper Peninsula, and that that little school has produced two NFL head coaches. Northern Michigan is the alma mater of Steve Mariucci, who coached for the 49ers and the Detroit Lions, and you. What was it like back in the day? I mean, you're you're a Detroit kid, a city kid, and you go all the way to the Upper Peninsula. You must have thought you're on another planet. Well, it was funny. Uh... They had more deer and more antelope than people. <laughs> and uh, I, I'm, I'm an outdoor guy, providing I'm downtown. I'm not an outdoor guy in the woods. But uh, by the way, Mariucci was so good as a player. He came in third for the Heisman Trophy that, at that school. I mean, that, that's unbelievable. Uh, and then uh, I had a chance. He, he interviewed with me at uh, the Houston Oilers. Uh, I was a coach at th there at that time and the Green Bay, and he started his career off as a quarterback coach in, in Green Bay. Now, one of the stories, Jerry, after you graduated from high school, and, I, and again, fans, you got to understand, Jerry and I have been friends for a long time. And, and uh, but one of the stories I loved that you told me was as a young graduate assistant at Western Kentucky, if I remember correctly, you roomed with a pretty good offensive line coach that Washington Redskins fans certainly would know. And he became uh, head coach at Joe Bugle. He became the head coach, of course, of the Raiders uh, in the Cardinals. So uh, I, I was kind of unusual there. We were two guys, very young, uh, making $125 a month uh, coaching football. Uh, and Joe would go out and try to find where we could get a place to eat. We'd run out of money before the month was over. And uh, I brought him, when I went to Detroit Lions, I was able to get him to come with us a, a year or two later. And he, he coached uh, with us at Detroit as an assistant. Then went on with the Redskins and other people. By the way, we stole him away from Ohio State and uh, Woody Hayes didn't like that. He came up into our building at the Lions 
and turn tables upside down trying to get him to come back. <laughs> well, the story that I loved was you told me about how you guys would live in, you know, you're living cheap because you're, you know, young guys trying to break into the business and talk ball nonstop. And you would sit after you'd, you'd order pizza and keep the pizza box so you could draw X's and O's on the pizza box. Well, it was funny at uh, Georgia Tech. We played so well, Georgia Tech wanted to hire me. And they said, can you show us your playbook? I said, well, it's on about 30 pizza boxes. If you want to look at some. my playbook was on pizza boxes. We had enough to buy a pizza in those days. It was really cheap. And uh, unfortunately, we were both bachelors. And we had a light on on the front roof. Uh, by the way, we didn't have any heat or anything. We were living in a log cabin. But if the porch light was on, it meant that one guy was entertaining somebody and <laughs> you had a, he couldn't come in. So I slept in the car most of the time. So I really, <laughs> he'd leave the light on. And then a couple of times he left the light on, he was in there by himself. I could have just smacked him. But uh, a very good football coach was a very good friend. And uh, we're both blessed with uh, having long time NFL careers. Well, you know, you talk about good football coaches and you make the move from Western Kentucky to Georgia Tech and you work for a guy that's renowned, legendary defensive coach, had, you know, became a head coach in the NFL himself, but really made his name as a defensive coach in Bud Carson. What was it like to go and work as a young assistant for Bud Carson? Well, I tell you what, he was uh, a knowledgeable guy and he hired uh, Tom Moore on the offense. So here's Tom Moore in the NFL. He, you know, he's still coaching in the NFL. And we were the assistants at Georgia Tech. And I tell everybody I like to be current. I like us to be ahead of what's happening. And I think uh, with Tom Moore and myself, uh, what everybody was going to do in two years, we were doing now and then. How about this? Uh, we ran the 425. Uh, in 1968, uh, about 30 years later, I had the TV on and somebody said, look at the Bears. They got this brand new defense, the 425. <laughs> we all just started laughing. We've been running all of our lives. So uh, it, it was good because we were, we were uh, way out there on what was going on and our players played so hard. We were so good on defense. Uh, and poor Tom, uh, the way Bud Carson was the head coach, he said, Tom, if you don't turn the ball over, the defense will win this thing. So I don't care what you do, just don't turn the ball over. So we, we weren't explosive uh, offensively, but Tom knew his, his job was to be sure the defense had a shot at winning the game. Well, you guys played such great defense at Georgia Tech, you were able to parlay that into an opportunity to get to pro football, which is NFL is the highest level. Everybody wants to be there. You go as a young guy, to one of the iconic franchises in, in the National Football League, the Detroit Lions. And they had a pretty salty bunch of players at the Lions in those days. Well, I was so lucky. Uh, I, I was interviewed the week before I took the Detroit job. I was interviewed at the Redskin jobs with George Allen, of course, a, a famous coach. And uh, I didn't know people in, in pro football, and I never apply, applied for a job. I was so fortunate. In my entire coaching career, I've never applied for a job. And so 
here the Detroit Lions come after us. And uh, I was uh, hired as a special teams coach, period. That was my job. I was special teams. I was not coaching on the defense. I was the third guy in the history of the NFL to be a full-time special teams coach. Marv Levy was the first. And the second was the guy from the Eagles, Dick Vermeil, and then me. And years later, we're all playing each other in the playoffs. And we were the first guys that their only job was special teams. And then the next year, I was fortunate enough, uh, I, I moved and started coaching the defense for the Lions. And uh, we played very, very well because we had real, real tough football players. I tell you what, Jerry, you know, Lions fans, it's been so long since they've had success. And if you are a Lions fan out there, listen to this cast of characters, these great players that played on your Lions defense. Tell us about Numoff and, you know, all those guys that you had. Oh, yeah. We, we had Charlie Weaver and, and uh, Paul Numoff were our outside linebackers. The game has changed. Paul Numoff probably weighed 215, 212. But he was a wide receiver at the University of Tennessee. In those days, they didn't run 100 meters. They ran 100-yard dash. And he could run a 9-800. So he was probably as fast a linebacker as playing. And uh, Charlie Weaver was from uh, Southern Cal. And, and he was probably 225. And that's all the – today, <laughs> the NFL don't want anybody at those weights playing those positions. We had a guy named uh, Loslovic inside as a linebacker, but – uh, we had Herb Orvis. We had we had people that really wanted to get out. Our secondary was blessed. We had Lem Barney, who's in the Hall of Fame. We had Dick Duran at free safety, who became the head coach of Chicago and Buffalo. But maybe as good a player, I, I named defenses after Charlie West. We got Charlie West in a trade from the Vikings because Charlie wanted a machine. Charlie made all of his own leather clothes. Well, Bud Grant said, you just come in there. We're not in the clothing business. Well, I found that out. Our owner at Detroit was William Clay Ford. And I said, could I have the money to buy the best leather sewing machine? He goes, well, what are you doing? I said, uh, uh, we got a shot here to get the, I got Charlie West for a leather sewing machine. And he may, he may be as good as anybody's ever played strong safety. Now, I got to ask you, LeBeau had to be around at that time, too, didn't he? We, we just missed each other. He was leaving when I was coming in, and uh, I got to know him. Great football coach. Good man. And, by the way, hell of a player. Uh, and uh, you'll die laughing. You know, when you take your secondary, you got Charlie West, and and, and uh, you, you got and you got Lem Barney. And the other corner was for, was uh, Levi Johnson. Yeah. Uh, and Dick Duran, I kind of thought I really knew what was going on when I had those players. That's a pretty good coach. Back. And I'll tell you about that team. Most of those players were older than me as coaching them. Everybody said, I was so fortunate I went there because in the NFL, if the pro player listens to you and he thinks that makes him a better player, yeah. he'll do anything you ask him. If you tell this pro player to do something, he doesn't think that's making him better, you've got a problem. I never had one problem with one NFL player in my entire career. So I was a young, young guy at Detroit, and we did radical things that nobody else was doing. And they did it and loved it. And I think what was great, 
is they got after and hit you. They taught me I could get them, the NFL player, to hit like the Georgia Tech, Western Kentucky player. And not a lot of people were doing that. Uh, and as a special teams coach, nobody was rushing extra points and field goals. Nobody was rushing punters. So as a special teams coach, we, we led the league every year in blocked punts and kicks because – I went back and watched the great Vince Lombardi teams. I was at Detroit, so I had access to Green Bay films. And they never rushed an extra point or field goal. They never went after a punter. And I said, we can do things they haven't done in this league. And that's sort of how I got that. Now, again, I never applied for a job. I left there. And uh, I was just so fortunate that... And, Probably not today. Today is not like that. Your resume was on your film. I didn't have to call Paul Brown, call me and offer me a job. I didn't have to call Paul Brown while well, we played the Bengals. They had a guy, uh, Isaac Curtis, as a punt returner. Nobody could stop him. And we're going to play him. So this coach in Detroit, this young coach that doesn't know any better, First time ever splits the ends to cover the punt to get to Isaac Curtis. So the first time the formation is detached and we smack Isaac Curtis around on a Sunday. On Monday, Paul Brown calls and offers me a job. He goes, what are you doing? How did you come up with that? So I didn't know any better. And he said, I'd like to hire you. I said, well, I appreciate that. He goes, but I need to know something. I goes, what is it? He said, what if I had a punt block on and those two ends were split? I said, you'll have to hire me to know what we're going to do. But <laughs> he didn't know that. I had to bring it in, in. We weren't ready to play all zone protection. It was all man punt protection. Now it's all zone. I had to bring an end in uh, if they did that, but they never did it. So we're, we're fortunate to be in a lot of first. I coached with a great coach named Jimmy Carr. And uh, we were playing on Sunday. Jimmy Carr was his idea. He said, Jer, let's take the will out of the ball game. Said, Why are you taking him out of the ball game? He goes, I want to put in uh, Davis. It was Angela Davis's brother. Mm -hmm. And I want to I want a Connie in and out on the weak split in. It was, let's take a look at it. What are we doing on the rest? We're still playing cover four over there, but the will comes out and we got that double. We got the slot double. Let's take a look at it. We ran it on a Sunday and the NFL in those days was, what are you doing? On Monday, George Allen called me. That's the first nickel ever running football. Nobody had ever seen a nickel. We didn't even know it was the nickel. We knew, we knew we had placed the rail with a DB and George Allen called me. He goes, what in the heck are you doing? I goes, what are you talking about, coach? He goes, we got your film. You got, you only got two linebackers in the game. What are you doing with the other DB? What's going I said, we made a substitution there. <laughs> we would not. If I wasn't working for you, I never told you what we were doing. And uh, he goes, oh, yeah. we said, we don't know how he got in there. <laughs> now, we're going to we're going to get into some some of the fun stuff in a minute but one of the things that 
I think people need to understand or need to remember or appreciate maybe more is for all the craziness and all the fun and all the, you know, all the great one-liners and all of that still to this day, to this day, the best scoring defense in NFL history is not the 85 bears. It's not the Baltimore Ravens of Ray Lewis and Ed Reed. It is the grit splits of Jerry Glanville and the Atlanta Falcons. And you did it coach with one pro bowl player. One. I think the fun of that team, that 77 Falcons is called the one twenty nine club. And, and I've been to the hall of fame a couple of times because when you coach there, they give you a free card. You can go back. I coached in the hall of fame two, three times. And I tell everybody in the hall of fame, there's one plaque, their honor, one thing without one player's name. They're actually honoring the team. And the 129 club was the defensive team uh, for the Falcons uh, that gave up 129 points for the season. Uh, average like nine points a game. And like you say, people will start off, you know, six games. They just finally someone's going to break the Falcons record, look at how this team's playing. But before the year is over, uh, they, they got a lot more points than what they put on us. And that team, by the way, we weren't loaded with talent. But I took the physicality of the Detroit Lions and the Detroit Lions. They didn't fool around. There was nobody that wasn't trying to hammer you. And I took that physicality with me to Atlanta. And the physicality in the scheme was different. We schemed differently, and we schemed different in Detroit. In fact, uh, you'd love this. We were number one defense in Detroit, and William Clay Ford, who owned Ford Motor Car Company, owned the Detroit Lions. And he called He called me into the office, and he said, I happen to know we don't have the best defensive people in the league, but we're the number one defense for 12 weeks in a row. I said, well, yeah, they play hard, boy. They, nobody works harder. Nobody takes more pride. And he had a button, and the drawer came out. <laughs> and, and the drawer was a new contract, a new Ford Thunderbird, and the Detroit Lion ring with diamonds for eyes. And he goes, I know why we're number one, and I'm going to take care of you. I thought, this pro ball sure beats college ball. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you're, you, I mean, offense so, struggles so bad in Atlanta, uh, you know, under Lehman Bennett, but you, you again, create a, a sensation on defense. And for Atlanta, which at that time was a small market city, and the only guys that were getting commercial time was the defensive players. Now, that's, that's, highly unusual, particularly back in those days. But I remember the grits blitz commercials from some oh, yeah. grits company in, in Alabama. Cereal. They made cereal. Yeah. So, yeah. so now you take that physicality that you started in Detroit and carried to Atlanta. Now you go and the, the, you know, the mystique even grows greater because you coined the term, the house of pain, when you go to Houston to be the Oilers defensive coordinator and 
Houston, again, was a down, downtrodden franchise, didn't have a lot of national attention. And all of a sudden, you create a sensation with the House of Pain. Talk about that. Well, it was Robert Lyles, by the way, outside linebacker for issue, great football player. And he went out for the cult. He was our captain. So they're going out to, for the coin toss to decide. And, you know, the other team has players out there. And Robert reached over and he said, welcome to the house of pain. <laughs> uh, and, and Robert would tell him, uh, we don't worry about your teammates. We got plenty of body bags. <laughs> and they got after it. That physicality uh, that was at Detroit and was in Atlanta had grown and grown, and now it was in Houston. And 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 you like this. I went to Detroit, Houston Oilers, and Atlanta Falcons. All three jobs the year before we went there were last in defense in the NFL. In our first year, we were first. We went from last to first. Well, go back to Canada. When we went to Canada, we went from last to first. And I never, I tell everybody, I never made a tackle. I never intercepted the pass. I never caused a fumble. This credit goes to how hard our team played. Uh, Jerry Glanville happened to be there and blessed with these types of players. What if I was at a team, they said, we're, we're not going to gang tackle. We're not going to hit. We're not going to do that. You wouldn't know who I am. Well, I, I got a sneaking suspicion if that was the case, those players wouldn't be there very long. <laughs> but, because being physical and being tough, right? And I'm not talking about cheap shot because that's no. that kind of was the image for a while that the that the, the Oilers were a dirty team. And well, the reason nobody, that was out there, nobody gang tackle like we did. And there was a guy that played quarterback at Southern Cal. He played for the Rams. A little short guy. Hayden. And what was Pat his name? Hayden. Pat Hayden. And how about this? Pat Hayden is finally doing one of our games on TV. And he's the first announcer, first media guy. He goes, this is the University of Alabama with bigger, stronger, faster people. He goes, people don't like the way they play. They play just like Alabama. They don't want to be tackled by one, two guys. They want to be tackled by 11. And uh, he was the first guy to realize what we did is we took that swarming gang tackling college mentality and took it farther. Why did we take it farther? Because we were bigger, faster, and better athletes than they had in college. So now I'm the head coach in pro football. And the head coach at Notre Dame, the head coach at Syracuse, they, they all call and say, how do you get your team to play like that? And really, we started playing like that. I was blessed at Georgia Tech. Georgia Tech played like that. Western Kentucky did. So my career, I never had players that would not. And, and you know, my saying, anybody can say we're pursuing you have to enjoy the chase. When our players are chasing the ball carrier, I can see them. They have a smile on their face. They're not trying to get over there and get in on it. They're trying to get over there and smack that guy. And uh, football's a great game. I love it. <laughs> now, again, the defense obviously 
had a mystique about it, but you had the courage at a time when nobody said, I mean, nobody, nobody in the world. As a matter of fact, people said the Chuck and Duck, they said, you can't play without a tight end. You can't play without two backs in the National Football League, all that. Hugh Campbell had brought his quarterback from the Edmonton Eskimos, Warren Moon, down to Houston. You inherit Warren Moon and have the courage to put him in the backfield with no tight end, four wide receivers, right, and run a, what was supposedly a gimmick offense in the run and shoot. And one you guys – One that you could not went, survive. You guys went up and down the field when they said – everybody said it'll never work. You can't play that kind of football. And what was kind of unfair, the Houston-Dallas game was a, was a big deal. We played for the Governor's Cup, and uh, the Dallas Cowboys had Tom Landry, probably his famous and most respected coach in football. And we had run that offense on third and long up to then. Uh, a little played with it a little bit on third and long thing. And on first down and second down, we were like everybody else, what I call super double boring. And then we'd come in there. And so June Jones, a uh, great innovator, great coach for me, and uh, taught me as much football or more than I taught him. And I said, uh, for the Dallas Cowboys, I said, and I love Tom Landry. And I said, we're going to run that every down, every play. And June looked at us, really? I was, <laughs> yes. Well, you, we went through quarterbacks. I got, we're beating them so bad. Now Cody Carlson, our backup quarterback's playing. And June is there. And we're up so many points. There's a timeout. And I said, Cody, if we score again, June, if we score again, you're both fired. <laughs> and Cody says, well, what can I do? Everybody's open. I said, uh, let the ball slide down your arm. Because <laughs> I can't do that. My parents are here. Goes, okay. Uh, if you break loose on a scramble, slide early. He goes, how early? I goes, nobody's even around. I loved Tom Landry. And we had the point where I said, we cannot score any more points. And it wasn't fair to the Dallas Cowboys because nobody had ever seen that till that game. That was the last preseason game. And everybody said, what is this? And, and it was kind of funny because their defensive coordinator uh, was a great player and a good coach. And he met me before the game. He goes, Jerry, your team's really coming along. <laughs> he had no idea. I said, yeah. I said, he goes, you're really starting to play pretty good. I think in a couple of years, you'll be able to compete with us. I said, well, I hope it's sooner than that. And we hung 50 on them like that. Uh, and, that's, that's beautiful. And, and that, was, um, that was the start of us running a full-time all the time. Now, you said you love Tom Landry, but I want to talk about another love affair that you had. And it, I mean, or the guy must have had it with you because I remember watching a Steelers-Oilers game and after the game, Chuck Noll grabbed your hand and he just wouldn't let your hand go. He he must really liked you. He was infatuated. I've been looking at my hand now. I don't know why he liked it so much. 
Um, <laughs> what had, they had done, they had run roughshod. By the way, the AFC Central then, there will never be football that physical. You know, you had Cincinnati, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, Houston, all. We, we were the only division with four teams instead of five. And we always had three in the playoffs. And out of those four teams, their only losses would come to somebody in our division. We'd go outside. All those teams would, would muster up and hit you and play hard. Well, I got – I was at the Buffalo Bills, and Chuck was trying to hire me at Pittsburgh, and Houston was trying to hire me at Houston. And I respected Chuck because uh, he was the only guy that could out-hit the Raiders, right? He's the only guy that could physically – beat the Raiders at their game. And I admired that from him. And then I told him uh, I was going to Houston rather than come to Pittsburgh. And he said, you go there. You go there and you coach there. And you look over twice a week because we'll be kicking your butt. I respected him so much. I said, well, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Never got mad at him. Well, as you know, the worm turned. And... We never lose a game in Pittsburgh, and we beat him at home. So he went from domination of beating us twice a year and never losing at home to we're dominating him. So he came over to Houston. That game became famous, and, and we uh, we ran roughshod a little bit. And he grabbed my hand. He goes, it's going to be your, and he swore. He grabbed my hand. He goes, the next time we play, it's going to be your. And he swore. I looked at him. I was really shocked. I really respect him. And I says, well, what's the problem? He goes, they're coming from everywhere. I said, what? He goes, they're coming over the top. They're coming down low. They're coming from. I goes, oh, yeah, we asked him to do that. He was talking about the game tackling. Yeah. And he goes, they're hitting us from everywhere. I goes, yeah, we, we require that. And he goes, you'll get paid back when you come back to Pittsburgh. This isn't over. We went back to Pittsburgh. I don't know what it was, three weeks, four weeks later. It was the worst physical beating, not points. I had the Warren Moon. I told Warren Moon, we're not throwing a pass till we make them surrender. And Warren's first pass was off the 32 cut, which we ran for a touchdown. There was nobody playing the pass. And then we, how about this? You're in pit, we blocked two punts for two touchdowns. This game is a physical whipping. And Chuck and I never spoke after that. That was the end of our uh, friendship. Well, I want to go a little deeper into that one because there's a side story on that weekend. Uh, you know, in pro football, you don't have much time off. and But later in the week, before you get on the plane to go, you know, your last practice, that's your evening to get home and see your family. So you so you go home and you and your wife are, are taking a bike ride around uh, your subdivision. There's a new house. You're on an island. It's on yeah. an island. And so there's water all around you. There's a new house being built and you want to walk over. You, you got flip flops on and shorts. You want to walk over and, and take a look at that house. And My wife wants to see the kitchen. Tell, tell the fans what happened as you were walking through the. Well, in grass. Texas, they call it Johnson, Johnson grass. It's high grass up to your knee. It's wild grass. And uh, 
we put the bikes down by the curb. I got on flip-flops and head coaching shirt. I don't have anything else on. That's all I'm wearing. And uh, she said, I'd like to see the kitchen. I goes, why? We're not buying it. We're not. Well, I want to see it. Well, like you said, you're home one day a week. So you, you sort of try to do what your, your bride wants to do. And as we're walking there, I slip and I slip back. And I think I stepped on a two by four and slipped back. And it had nails and it flipped over and put two nails on the top of my right foot. And uh, I reached down to pull the two by four and the nails out of my foot and there's nothing there. And I look at my foot and I have two holes in the top of my foot. And I said, what the heck was that? So my wife says, let's look at the kitchen. We go up and we look, we look around, come back and get on our bikes. And we're riding our bikes. And my wife says, Jerry, look at your foot. My foot was black like a tire. I looked down and says, holy cow, I wonder what that is. Well, I'm not an outdoorsman. In fact, not much good happens outdoors. And I uh, had a good friend that was, his name was Sam. We went over and knocked on his door. He opened the door and he goes, you've been bit by a water moccasin. I said, you're kidding. He goes, I have to get you to the hospital. We went to the hospital. Sure enough, I got bit. They put me in the hospital. They're treating. This is on Saturday, the day before we play the Steelers on Sunday. And uh, they said, well, you'll be in the hospital probably three days. I go, no. Uh, give me AMA, which means against medical advice. You sign that, you can walk out. Give me what you got to give me. They did. And I was double IV'd uh, with anti-venoms before the game. I'm sitting in my arms. I got two arms out, and they're putting in this anti-venom stuff in. And you can see why Chuck got mad. And he says, the doctor will be standing next to you because we don't know what's going to happen. Terrible story. So now this game where Chuck goes crazy, I tell the doctor, I'm going to vomit. I'm going to throw up. I'm so sick to my stomach. He goes, you need to eat something. I said, what would he goes, I'll go get you a hot dog. I'm on the sideline. Sideline. He goes, I'll go get the hot dog. I said, well, don't bring that hot dog back without mustard. (laughs) So we're lining up. How about this? We're blocking a punt. And Chuck looks over. I'm on one knee eating a hot dog. <laughs> he thinks I'm being disrespectful. I'm going to, I'm sick to my stomach. So go back to that handshake. He gets his butt kicked and he looks over and the head coach on the sideline eating a hot dog. I'd be mad too. <laughs> well, you know, I love the little side story to that, that, um, and we talked about this as a staff this morning. I told the story. Houston, Houston is the third largest city in America. It's huge, huge city. And the biggest paper is the Houston Chronicle. And if you, the next day, if you open the sports section of the Houston Chronicle, on the headline of the banner headline on the top of the sports section is Glanville bitten by snake, snake dies. <laughs> that's, the, that's the greatness of that, that whole house of pain deal jerry you you go uh i gotta say this the only media 
that loved me and gave me good press was in England. And one year they took me to Brighton, England. They honored me as good. And I went to Brighton. I felt so good because I was wearing all black. Everybody in Brighton wears all black. <laughs> and they were honoring me. I said, I'd like to go to the beach. I love and I went to the beach and everybody had on an overcoat and a hat and gloves sitting on the beach. I said, you gotta love this country. <laughs> We're going to we're going to talk about that in a second, but I want to jump forward now to I, I think it was maybe even crazier time in the NFL than the House of Pain days in Houston. And that's when you went back to Atlanta as the head coach and you personally changed the Falcons color scheme in their uniforms from it was almost all red at that time to you put them into black helmets, black shirts all black, right? And their t-shirts were black with the, the white outline of a falcon. Real men wear black. Waylon Jennings, who was a country music star, was in your locker room. Travis Tritt in your locker room. Vander Holyfield, the heavyweight champion of the world, in your locker room. Uh, you were too legit to quit. You did a music video with MC Hammer. But the all-time greatest one, and this is, fans, this is true. All right. I want Jerry, tell him about the time when you had James Brown play tailback at practice for the Atlanta Falcons. James Brown was from, uh, from Georgia, South Georgia, down by Macon. And he came up to practice and, uh, C Miller was our quarterback. And, uh, I said, James Brown, he, did you ever play football? Well, he, he's very, very small. People don't realize how small he was. And I said, we're going to have you run a play. We ran a toss sweep in practice to James Brown and the whole team loved him. And as he come around the corner, everybody that would have killed him fell down. So James Brown thinks he's going the distance and it was so much fun. And he was screaming the whole way. (laughs) (laughs) And that was things we did at practice to have fun. And uh, he was one of the many, uh, how about this? Jerry Jeff Walker would be on our sideline for our games. And for people in England, Jerry Jeff Walker, he's the writer. He writes every great song in Texas. And uh, he'd come in on Saturday night, play a couple tunes, and sing a song about us. He'd write a song about us. Uh, he was that talent. What, what great memories we had. What fun we had. Uh, we never let fun interfere with our schedule. And... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I was always proud. We were going to play the Redskins in Washington, second round of the playoffs. I don't tell anybody where we're going, what we're doing. I never do. Players don't know. Nobody knows. And I took them to the Vietnam Wall and the statue right on the side is Iwo Jima. We get off the bus in Washington, D.C., and here's all these Vietnam vets in wheelchairs waiting for the Falcons. And I looked at from Chicago. I remember guy from Chicago says, well, how, how in the world would you know we were coming? He goes, that's who you are. That's your team. And we took our team picture and every player I see that was there at our team picture is in front of the Iwo Jima statue. And it's kind of scary 
I walked up the Vietnam Wall, and this happens all the time. You walk right up, and your finger goes on somebody you knew and went to school with. Yeah. And that happened to us. And so when we were on the road, uh, we saw things and did things. People couldn't believe I took my team there. And I said, I couldn't go there without taking them there. So, uh, you know, um, that group of guys was a, that was an interesting collection. I'll, I would just say it that way. I heard a story. You got to verify this or not verify it, right? That post game, you would have two buses. One was a bus for the we guys. We better not bus. verify that. That's true, but we better not verify. We did. One, we one was a bus for the guys that didn't want to fight, and the other bus was for the guys that wanted to fight. So if you had a beef with somebody about something that happened in the game, you just put them on that bus as you guys work it out. <laughs> well, I wanted to work out before we got on the airplane. <laughs> I didn't want any. Hey, all, all fights were over when we got on the airplane. Now, the problem is I had a great – a great, uh, my owner is Rankin Smith, a great guy, did a lot of things that nobody else would do. And he would, he'd say, uh, Jerry, I'm getting a heck of a bill that second bus. We got windows busted out. We got bathroom <laughs> tore out of it. I guess, yeah, it's a rough ride. And I rode on the second bus. Uh, and uh, let's say you were the offensive center and you were mad at the corner. Uh, I said, work it out before we get to the airplane. When we get on the airplane, we're all together again. And families fight. I fought my brother. My brother fought me, right? Well, by the time we got on the airplane, we got to be one happy team. And uh, so everybody that's ever involved with that, they still talk about all fights on the second bus. On the first bus, just get them play cool. We don't talk to anybody. And uh, we did that for years. Uh, Had a lot of fun. There are two. There are two more things I want you to talk about. Two. Um, one of them is a tradition that you started, and it gained incredible notoriety around the country when it when people found out that you actually did it. But this is this is after Elvis Presley had passed away. The King had passed away, and you're coaching in the NFL as a head coach in the NFL and everybody in the NFL gets a couple tickets on the road for, you know, your family or somebody you want to take care of. And you had a tradition of leaving tickets for Elvis Presley. Now tell me exactly how that started. That's really our good friend, June Jones caused that whole thing. And by doing that, that has a life of its own, which is, Partly truth, mostly fiction. <laughs> yeah, and you can't stop the growth. I mean, it, it, it's actually shocking what you read and what's real. I had a pickup truck, and June and I were going to uh, practice, and uh, we got the radio on, and we hear Elvis was spotted at a Burger King in Michigan, and we were playing the New England Patriots in Memphis at the Liberty Bowl preseason. And June said, well, we had to leave two tickets. The halftime show was dedicated to Elvis. He's in Michigan. We're playing. Chair, got to leave him a couple tickets. So that's a good idea. Well, after every NFL practice, you have a press conference with people standing around and you leave. And I told him, 
we're leaving two tickets for Elvis at Memphis. Well, it grew so much. Uh, they had a line of Elvis impersonators at the game. Now, I shouldn't say impersonators. One of them may have been him trying to get in. And they had to ask him questions to see if he was really Elvis. And they had to ask him. Wait, 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 wait. You mean people drove, drove excuse me, put clothes on and makeup and hair and the whole deal to impersonate Elvis to try and get two tickets. <laughs> All the time. I tell you, those are dedicated NFL fans. What was Elvis's middle name? That would be a question. Do you know what it was? Aaron. Second part. How was Aaron's, how does dad spell his name on the tombstone? Don't have any idea. Incorrectly. Incorrectly. How incorrectly. About oh, yeah. So we the, these questions would be asked. And uh, it, it, it sort of grew from there. And while I was at Houston, you know, we went out and played Seattle in, in Seattle. Well, we we get we left two tickets for DB Cooper, and we got in <laughs> we got in trouble with the FBI because now the FBI had to come and see if he showed up. They're still looking for him. Uh, All right, now we that takes me to another time you got in a little bit of trouble, and uh, it, it's a it's another tradition and i i'm proud to say that i'm i was a recipient once but floyd reese was your linebacker coach in houston and you're going to atlanta as the head coach of the falcons and you want floyd to come but floyd wants to go into upper management no, floyd, floyd had agreed to come oh yeah and, and was moving the moving van was heading that way and floyd gets a call that he if he stays, he can be assistant general manager. What the hell is assistant general manager? <laughs> and that's a, and they stop the van and turn it around. And uh, kind of upset me, so I sent him a black rose. And no. then the week, and, and he told everybody he got the black rose, uh, which I then got in trouble with the, the commissioner called me said bud adams the owner of those said you have sent floyd a death threat <laughs> and i said you can't send a man a death threat that you're considering dead <laughs> i consider him dead already and so the black rose was not real big in the league office uh but those things happen i tell you what and I remember getting one from you one time. So I've, I've kept you that. one this year. <laughs> I've kept that black rose forever. Hey, we got some questions from some fans out there, Jerry, that, that would like to ask you this. Uh, this is from Sparky 54 in Cornwall, down in Cornwall in England. He says, Jerry. I'm from Cornwall. Well, here we go. This is the question. Jerry, I think, has ancestral roots from Cornwall, England. Pretty sure we're related in the dim and distant past, as I also have Cornish Glanville blood. Would he have liked to bring a Falcons team over to the London? Well, it's kind of funny. London treated me so good. Uh, actually, I was treated better in England than I was in the United States. And <laughs> and and uh, my family, you'll love this now, in Cornwall, there's two towns. One's Red Ruth and, and my uh, mother's uh, ancestry all came from Red Ruth and the other towns Camburn and my father's ancestry they're, they're like right next to each other 
was from there. And that was a heritage. And uh, I grew up with that answer. I grew up, uh, uh, I, I watch uh, uh, any English movie and I, I, the, the way uh, the English is spoken, the things they say, uh, the, the way they speak are exactly how I grew up with my grandparents. Uh, it, it's just unbelievable that I was so fortunate. I did get to go back to Cornwall. Of course, and, and people in Cornwall, if you're listening, I grew up eating a pasty every week, a Cornish pasty. <laughs> nobody, nobody else would know what we're talking. In fact, when I was in London, I went to the biggest department store there. Is that Harris? Is that what they call it? Harris, yeah. And I went in and even bought one of their pasties. Uh, by the way, it wasn't bad. It was pretty good. And and the pasty was the meal that you took underground to eat when you're a miner. Well, people don't realize Cornwall, they mined 100% of the tin in the world was mined out of Cornwall. So the pasty went underground. They heated it on a shovel. You ate it Cousin Jack style. We say ketchup. They say tomato paste. You pour it down in there. So I'm an Englishman all the way. And uh, I, I was just so fortunate to have this heritage uh, that then in Michigan, in the Upper Peninsula, they found iron ore. Well, who's going to mine it? The miners of the iron ore in the Upper Peninsula, Michigan, all came from Cornwall. That's how my great-grandmother came over before there was a Statue of Liberty. So she had us. She go, Once they put the statue, I want to go back and see the Statue of Liberty. They came before the statue was up on the island. So my heritage, I would like this guy to set up. A, my, my mother's maiden name was Simons, S-I-M-O-N-S, which is great heritage. I went to the churches in Cornwall where my great-grandparents were baptized. How awesome is that? If he can get us a Glanville Simons reunion, I'll buy the first three kegs. <laughs> <laughs> and I got a feeling in Cornwall, that'll be just getting you started. Hey, yeah. David Stretch, uh, Jerry, is a football coach in Manchester, England, a real good guy, real good football coach. And he asks this question, he says, can you ask Jerry which season he looks back on more fondly, the 77 Grits Blitz or the 91 Falcons? Wow. That's a tough question. Uh, both a lot, a lot of fun. But I'm so fortunate, and you know me, what was my favorite job, right? The one I have right now. So my favorite team will shock you, will be this year's team. What's happened with players? History. And what was this gentleman's name? David Stretch. I may shock him, I may not. For our players, history is something that happened about two hours ago. <laughs> They're not interested. And, and this is interesting for him. I don't ever tell one player I coach of my history. They have if they know where I coach, they looked it up. I never, I'm only interested in what we did yesterday, what we're doing today, and what we're going to do tomorrow. So my favorite team, as you know, you've been with me, is the one I'm coaching. Right. Now, before we get to what you're doing right now, I want, I, we got one more question I want to get to you. Uh, these are great, 
great fans, both in the UK and Ireland, and they're all Packer fans. So, you know, because you drafted Brett Favre, you're going to get a Brett Favre question. It says, can you ask Jerry Glanville to retell the Brett Favre stories, please, Jeff Reinbold, about betting people how far he could throw the ball into the stands on the walkthrough day? Okay, we're going to play name the team. We're going to play the Rams in L.A. And so on Saturday, I did a walkthrough. I, I went in the locker room. I didn't want everything to be new game day. I went in the locker room. You, you'll die when I tell you this, coach. I showed our highlight film that you and I make in the locker room. So when they come back tomorrow, we've been here. We spent an hour here. There's nothing new. When we left the walkthrough locker room film video, we walked past the press box. And Brett Favre and a guy named Billy Joe Tolliver was our second team quarterback had unbelievable arms and they would get a football, not as big as normal with a whistle in it. So when they threw it, it whistled the whole way, like a rocket. And the team would line up and bet out of so many throws who would get the most in the press box, <laughs> the press box. Wait a football. second now. Wait a second now. The LA Coliseum, yeah, a hundred thousand people. That's a long way from the playing surface. When you hear this ball, if I can do it, <clears throat> he'd get in there. Up would step Billy Joe Tolliver. And how about this? Where'd we get on our way to the walkthrough? We would stop at a target and buy the bag of balls. <laughs> okay, we're going to throw up there. Now our starting quarterback was Chris Miller. I said, you want to get in on this? She goes, I can't throw like those two guys. They can throw that football. And that, it was uh, something we did on the away games. I want to go back. This was shocking. I want to go back to the Elvis Presley thing to tell you about taking a life of its own. Uh, I went into the Atlanta Falcons many years after I left. And they have a corner there where is their hall of shame or whatever you want to call it. And there's a segment there for Jerry Glanville. So I said, geez, I'll go over and read about self. And I go over and it says every game that Jerry coached in Atlanta, he left two tickets for Elvis. It's written down. It's in the internet. Truth is not one time. Not in, not in Atlanta, not one time. Not one time. That all happened in Houston. But like I tell you, this story grows and I, I, I wanted to try to separate and get the truth out. I have given up. I said, run with it. Whatever you like, believe. But the story, the, the story cannot be stopped. And, and um, you know, we left tickets for other people, and that got lost. We, you know, the D.B. Cooper, the Tonto, Lone Rangers, Compadre grew up in Cleveland. We left tickets for Tato in Cleveland. We had Indians coming from all over to get in the game. Uh, <laughs> so. Hey, um, one of the things that can't be stopped, one other thing that can't be stopped is you, because you are now a head coach once again, and you are the head coach of the Alabama Airborne of the Major League Football and how, how in the world or why in the world, after all that success and all those great teams and all of that, 
do you choose to come and work at a league that's trying to get off the ground and it's a place for young guys to find a way to get on film and hopefully fulfill their NFL dreams? The reason I do it, if we help one guy get a chance, if we can play, and, and you love this, our teams, we average 11 guys a year go from us to the NFL. And last year, we had three guys make the Chargers. Now, they're happy and they're excited. They're not half as happy as me. I'm happier than they are to be able to have that happen. And if you told me that couldn't happen, uh, I don't know that I'd be here because uh, we've proven, you know, we know what we're doing. We've proven we coach. Uh, and and people ask me why I'm still doing this. If we can get one kid another chance, you can't stop me from doing it. And as coaches in this league, the fun of it is, and you know them, I've had three, four assistants go out and they're three times the money we're making. And I'm thrilled to death that they got a big time job after doing this uh, developmental league, I'll call us. We're developmental league trying. Here's a guard that was with somebody and got cut. Well, you know, in the NFL, you'd be pretty good. But if they got two vets there, you're not staying. Uh, the coaches are on short-term contracts. They don't care where they are 10 years from now. They want to know, uh, you know, who's going to help me now. So we get a guy like that. All of our players have a plus. And with our staff, and I tell the staff this every year, do not, do not tell me what that player cannot do until you tell me three things you love about him. So don't come in and say that corner can't play man. I don't allow that to you. Tell me everything that you really like about. That changes us. That changes how you, 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 you treat your players. You keep seeing the play. You're, you're coaching a position and his skills don't fit in with our scheme. We're the only people in football. We change the scheme to fit in with his skills. Why the guy get cut at Chicago? Because they were playing two gap and this guy's an edge player. I, I laugh all the time. I remember that Cleveland, Cleveland Browns drafted couch at Kentucky. Great throwing shotgun quarterback. Unbelievable. We saw everything. He threw the ball first round picture. Remember? Yep. He went yeah. to Cleveland. He never got in the shotgun. He went to Cleveland, got underneath the center, did play action pass, put his helmet in his back to the secondary, after, and went back and came back and he said, hell, he can't throw. We don't do that. If you say this is a great running quarterback, we'll be bootlegged. If you say this quarterback can't run a lick, there is no bootleg pass. There is. We're going to do what he can do. And that's why we get 11, 12 kids. We had a team one time in Hartford, Connecticut, and we had a fold because the owner would not pay the workman's comp. We're in Hartford, Connecticut, coaching the Hartford Colonials. 
we have to fold because of $3 million they want for workman's comp. Two days, we have 29 kids in the NFL. Two days. Why would Coach, you not keep doing this? Coach, I tell you, it has been an absolute, absolute pleasure. You got to promise me you'll come back and do this again at some point because we, we got a lot more ground. Come back. We will only come back if we have kicked the stuff inside of somebody. <laughs> physically. Physically, if we have whipped somebody, we got a chance. If they're knocking us around, I'll hide in the closet till we come out and hit somebody. <laughs> All right. I got I, I got the message loud and clear, buddy. I hear you. Thank you so Thank much, you. Gary Glanville. It has been an absolute blast.